as part of a generation that grew up within 20 years of the end of the Second World War, I was always keen on weapons. Any decent human being would assume that the dropping of two nuclear bombs on Japan ought to have persuaded me of the error of our human ways, but it seemed to have the opposite effect. A fascination for Spitfires consumed me and drove me into playing parachute games, obviously I did not have enough true belief in my aeronautical abilities. From there, my friends and I moved into the realms of Japs and Commandos. The Japs had been depicted as a race of people totally devoid of human empathy. They captured our brave soldiers and made them into slaves on the railway of death. The problem with our game was that all of us wanted to be commandos. Subtle selection strategies were required in order to have an even contest, in which the commandos always won. The game involved an awful lot of running and hiding, finding and shooting, being found and escaping. It was just like the real thing that we had seen on countless films. We used sticks for guns and sticks for long samurai swords. Quite often, the battle would devolve into a medieval melee of hitting each other as hard as we could with said sticks. There was the Chinese strangulation which was a way of subduing captives. This was an extremely effective method of inflicting the best type of pain, the slow burn oxygen deficiency method. That way, you knew who had won. The second form of torture was the Indian wrist burn. This involved placing your hands on your enemy's wrist and then quickly rotating them in opposite directions. It had the exquisite inbuilt reminder of its execution with the angry red mark that refused to shift for days. Those were the days of innocence, before we moved on to imitation plastic rifles, botched affairs that only vaguely looked like the real thing, but with our dock, a dock, dock. It was enough to convince us of their potency. Hand grenades were invisible and exploded exactly where you wanted them to. All you had to do was to make a big boom sound, cover your ears and then throw yourself to the ground. If only all wars were so simple. Things started to get more complicated from the moment that we started to grow up. One of our mates had an air rifle bought as a Christmas present. He spent all that holiday practicing on sparrows and robins. He even shot the cat. Our friend always seemed to be the one who got things first. He had one of the best bikes, he had golf clubs, he had a number of cricket bats, he had ridiculously bright blue eyes, he had a level of freedom that we longed for, he was a talented sportsman, and he shot robins. He had everything that made him a top friend. On some of our summer holiday excursions, he would take his air rifle, slung in a purpose-made rifle bag, casually over his shoulder. At any point in our journey, he would swing it off his shoulder, unzip it and take aim at anything that dared to move. We were once walking along a path that ran beside a golf course. We had been on this route many times before on ventures of golf ball discoveries. The golf balls often got lost in the rough and they were of sufficient value that we heard some other kids had set up a rather profitable little business finding them and then selling them back to the golfers. Sometimes the treasures would disappear mid-play only for them to be strangely reunited sometime later with their true owners, for a small fee. We also prized these, but nobody thought that they would provide a realistic sell-back option. It was a lazy afternoon and we were mooching along, dragging through the dog-end hours, kicking pine cones and providing accompanying commentary for the excellence of each strike. I measured a masterful strike and my pine cone flew straight and long down the path. When it finally rolled to a halt, I provided the commentator's awestruck admiration. It's best. What a goal. What a strike. What a player. My arms shot into the air in a triumphant reaching for the skies and I raced off down the shaded path to acclaim my glorious feet. I almost slipped on the badly wounded body of a mouse. The mouse wasn't dead, but it was dying. In such an event, we should have done the merciful thing and caved its head in with a brick. There were no bricks to hand. We could have stamped on it head with the heels of our shoes, but none of us wanted to be seen as the heartless perpetrator of such a heinous act. Instead, 
we turned to our rifle-toting friend to provide the humane solution. He, however, never saw himself as one who would administer the coup de grace nor was he one to pass up the opportunity of a real-life kill. He was a sportsman and would execute his task in a manner befitting such a regal profession. He walked up to the soon-to-be corpse, turned and took thirty strides, checked the direction of the wind, took his rifle out, loaded it, knelt and took aim. We were in awe. After he missed for the third time, he changed his tactics. He strode forward another five paces, loaded, Nelton was about to take aim when he realized that he had forgotten to double-check the strength and direction of the prevailing wind on that most breathless of afternoons. Satisfied, he took aim and fired. After another five pellets had missed their target, the rest of us thought to check upon the unfortunate creature. It still lived. Its tiny breaths evident in furry inhales and exhales. I was thinking about the heel of my shoe when my friend angrily strode past me and aimed a final pellet, at point-blank distance, into the belly of the beast. It lived no more. As kills went, I suppose this counted for something, but there was no commentary this time and no overt display of triumph. We had killed a dying mouse. It had died. It would have died if my perfect kick of the pinecone had not found it. We had had sport and now we were somewhat ashamed. Our friend went on to kill many other tiny creatures, specializing in birds that frequented his garden. This went on until he discovered girls. After that, he hung up his trusty weapon forever. Sometimes it is good to hang up your guns. For one thing, you look silly when you're older, toting an air-powered, pellet-firing rifle. There is also the problem with killing defenseless little birds, tiny ones with red breasts. Nobody wants to be seen in any social situation with a bird-slaughtering psychopath. At some point, many boys give up their pursuit of prey and bloodlust for everyday distractions like life. But it all came back to me this week when the deaths of Charles Manson and David Cassidy were announced. I am too long in the tooth to cheer about the eventual demise of a cult-leading murderer whilst I am not too old to feel a spot of sadness for David Cassidy, my elder sister's dream boat and reason for having a bedroom wall. I asked a woman who I work with if she was saddened by the death of David and she told me that she was a Donny Osmond fanatic. I accepted that and was instantly taken back to my last adventure with an air gun. Some years ago, in a land far away, in a kingdom of grey cold, lived me. Another friend of mine lived around the corner. We were both at sixth form and the punk era was well and truly upon us. So, in a situation like that, what would any decent human being do if they discovered a Jimmy Osmond single in their collection? It was obvious. We decided to put it on trial for crimes against humanity. Jimmy Osmond, you have been tried and found guilty of unleashing your long-haired lover from Liverpool without care or regret as to the damage that you have wreaked. And, as you have since shown no remorse, this court finds you guilty. You are to be taken from here immediately and be shot until you are dead. And so it came to pass that the said 45 was taken from the kitchen of a council house overlooking the industrial grayness of West Yorkshire and shot to pieces by two rather judgmental youths with an air rifle. Since that day, I have vowed never to touch one of those instruments of death ever again.